Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Boss Barista. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. I'm Jasper Wild, and we have with us in my living room. I was going to say studio, but this is not a studio <laughs> at all. We have Liz Dean with us. She is on the executive council of the Barista Guilds of America. Um, she was the former head of retail for Irving Farm Coffee Roasters in New York City and is an overall wonderful and amazing person. She's written for Barista Magazine before. She has been on other podcasts. Um, I'm sure at this point, you, your episode of Opposites Extract will have come out. Let's hope. We could, we could pressure Meister right now. Right. Through this. Right. <laughs> um, we recorded this, so you need to release it now. Um, so thank you, Liz, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're in San Francisco right now. Liz, you're normally in New York. So why don't you tell us why you're here and what you've been doing um, with the BGA? Uh, yeah. So I'm here in an, technically an official capacity. Well, not here, like, currently. But, like... I am here on the West Coast because of um, Bloom, which was an event, is an event that gets put on um, each year by the BGA and the SCA. And it is an event geared toward Barista's um, professional development opportunity for people to learn about some cool stuff and meet cool people in the coffee industry. Mm -hmm. Jasper and I were lucky enough to get to work with you on a panel that we're still trying to figure out logistically how we're going to release that uh, because it wasn't recorded because it was an interactive discussion. Um, but you were part of helping to organize it. And also when we broke into small groups, you led a discussion about gentrification. Um, so thank you for doing that. Um, something you, that guys. I, yeah, something that um, I think about when I think about Liz a lot is that she's one of those people who I always tend to agree with <laughs> i think that liz and i especially have had a lot of like time growing together in the new york coffee scene and just being like wow like we're seeing a lot of things happen at the same time and it's all infuriating and terrible and obviously i left new york uh a couple of years ago um but even through that i think seeing you kind of see the same things that we, me and Jasper talk about, but seeing them through your perspective working as the head of retail has been really interesting. Um, so I want to go backwards on your old role as a head of retail for Irving Farm. What did that entail? What were your responsibilities there? And how did you kind of go from starting at Irving Farm into that position? Uh, yeah, so I was hired, I became a barista, like many people, basically by accident, which is that I was um, I had been a teacher like you and I was and I've secretly had the same <laughs> life. Um, and I had left teaching because the New York city public education system is kind of a mess. I loved teaching, but I just could not handle the stuff that was being asked of me as a teacher. Um, like passing students who had never attended class just to meet graduation or, um, uh, passing rates um, for our classes and um, that kind of thing. So when I left teaching, I was like, okay, I just want to do something not nearly as stressful. So I became a dog walker, which I loved, but I did not make enough money as a dog walker to live in New York City. So one of the cafes on my dog walking route that I would go to every day for a small coffee and a bagel with butter 
because that was all I could afford, was um, Irving Farms Cafe in Gramercy. And I went in there all the time and I got to know the staff. And then one day I was just like, are you guys hiring? Um, although I guess technically I worked at Seattle's Best kind of in between that. But I left my job at Seattle's Best to work at Irving Farm because it seemed like a much cooler job. <laughs> so I started that way and then uh, worked as a barista for about a year. I tried to leave because I thought I needed a real job again. And then and I, so I tried to do like a sales job, which I hated. And so like I think I did that for maybe three months before I was like, okay, I, I love Irving Farm and I want to come back. And so I came back and I, but I told them I wanted to do more and they offered me a management role. So I did that for three and a half years. And then a year and a half ago, I became the director of retail and I oversaw at the time, at the time that I started, we had, they had five cafes. And then by the time I left, there were eight. So I helped grow three new cafes. What does that entail? What were your responsibilities as director of retail? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm, it's funny cause I'm sure it looks different depending on so many different, I'm sure different coffee companies have like wildly different ideas about what a director of retail does. Um, I like to say that I kind of manage the managers, but really to me it was more like I supported the managers. I did what I could to make sure that they could do their jobs. Um, so that, that meant helping with, I did almost all the hiring. Um, I helped kind of set um, guidelines for training, um, store operations, uh, how they did ordering and that kind of stuff. But again, all really, it was like developing systems that just made it easier for them to manage their stores. One of the biggest challenges I think, and I'm sure this is true for probably a lot of coffee companies, um, is that each, each space that you open is unique. And so like you try and take systems that work really well in one cafe and you try and you're like, okay, this works really well. I'm just going to replicate this and put this in a different cafe. But a lot of times, you know, the customer base is different. I mean, one of the things that was really funny was seeing like different food items sold really well at one cafe and none of them sold at another cafe because it's just a different neighborhood. So I think that's like from an operational standpoint, that's one of the biggest challenges is that the systems, figuring out which systems could be replicated without having to like reinvent the wheel with every new cafe was probably one of, I think that for a lot of people, that's a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you say you did all the hiring for eight stores, that sounds like a job in and of itself. <laughs> Were, was the director of retail before you doing that? And how did, how did it feel to be hiring for a bunch of different stores when you yourself were not in all of the stores uh no that was actually a job i decided i needed to have um a, really a, one of the reasons for that was because um when i took over there weren't really guidelines for for hiring and so um that meant that sometimes previous managers just kind of hired however they wanted to which resulted in some cafes essentially being staffed by like all of the friends of that manager. And so, which led to some really weird cultural issues and customer service issues. Um, and, and I remember at one point I was working at, at the, one of the cafes where I was managing and a customer had told me that they had visited one of the other cafes and they were like, it's like the opposite of this store. It's totally weird and it's totally different. And I was like, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like that's right or normal to, to have cafes in the same company that are that just give a customer a completely different vibe. Um, and so I kind of I basically was just like, okay, until I can figure out how to really 
standardize hiring practices. I'm going to just do it for everybody so that I can really build a company culture of people and not hire people specific to locations because I wanted people to really feel like they could go from any store and feel like that vibe was really much like very much the same across all of the cafes, which was, I mean, it was a huge undertaking and it was a lot of work that I, I knew I didn't have to do. Like I knew I I could have just told the managers, okay, you have to hire. And I could have given them some basic guidelines, but I feel really that's one of the things I'm most proud of from my time at Irving Farm was was having the opportunity to do that much hiring because I learned a lot about what it means to hire good people. And I f- was able to form bonds with staff across all of the cafes. So every cafe I walked into, I knew everyone that worked there, um, which was and they knew who I was and they knew that I represented um, a lot of the voice and the vision of of what the company was about. And so there was just it it kind of created like a a community that I think can often get lost. Yeah. I read your interview that Ashley did for Barista Magazine, and it was really great. And the one thing that stuck out to me was um, how you said that you had used Craigslist to hire people. And that's how I got my job at Verve. And they would do these open open calls and like 60 or 50 people would show up at the roastery and they would just like whittle it down from there. But you just get this huge swath of people. And I kind of wonder why people don't do that. Well, can we go backwards a little bit? Why do people do that? I I think, I don't know, because the, the best, some of the best, most unexpected people probably show up wanting a job that you wouldn't have anticipated or maybe wouldn't have seen it on Sprudge or... Yeah, I mean, I think there. Well, I think there's a couple of issues at play. I think one of the things that's interesting is that in coffee, it can be. I mean, for better or for worse, it's a community that's pretty small. Although it really shouldn't be that small, but um, when people open cafes, I mean, it, it's just a, a tight knit community that they often end up hiring people that they're friends with or that was referred to them by a friend of theirs. Um, and a lot of times, those are people who it's almost like they see themselves in that other person. So like, that's why I think a lot of cafes end up with a lot of straight white dudes that work for them because they're, and they're almost like, you know, they're all like beards and tattoos and they wear flannel. Um, because like, they just like meet someone. They're like, Oh, you're so-and-so's friend. And like, you look like me. So like, you're, we're going to like, we're going to work together and it's going to be great. Um, so I think that is part of it. And I think it's also, it's easy to be lazy about hiring in that way. Like it's easy just to be like, okay, I'm going to hire this friend of someone rather than go through the effort of having to post on Craigslist because like from experience, when you post on Craigslist, you will get inundated with <laughs> dozens. I mean, at least especially in New York and any, I would imagine any major metropolitan area, like hun- sometimes hundreds of emails from people. And a lot of them are going to be nonsense. Like they're not even going to be they will not be descriptive in any way of who the person is that is applying for the job or if they even know what job they are applying for. Um, but what, what will they say? Just like, I'm looking for work and I'm like a 17 year old boy. Like they'll bring in random facts about themselves sometimes that um, you, you get a lot of things like <laughs> I have a car on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> they'll say things like that. They'll say things like, um, uh, you know, like I'm applying for to work at your business and and they'll list skills that you're like, you clearly copied and pasted this from like some like an office job and put it in here. Oh, and it's not 
unnecessarily applicable <laughs> to this like you know your your listing skills that involve sitting on a computer or sitting at a desk like in front of a computer versus being on the floor and and so things like that you're kind of like well maybe you're great but like it's kind of hard to want to kind of even find out if that person is actually interested in the job when they didn't read the job description at all mm-hmm. um Bare minimum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of it's, I honestly think a lot of it's just laziness. People are just lazy about hiring, which is hilarious to me because hiring is one of the most important things anyone can do for their business. Right. I think it's like someone could just say like, oh, I have a job opening. And then when people who apply are either like them or people that they were are referred through friends. And then you point out to that business like, hey, like you're lacking in like women or people of color or maybe people in the neighborhood who feel isolated from the space, the response is almost overwhelmingly like, well, these people aren't applying. And it seems like we're not looking at the problem and saying like, what solution can we offer? So something like hiring on Craigslist is one way to get like all of those people who maybe you don't see. Like, I love that verb has just open calls. That's amazing. Yeah. I've worked at a place where a lot of people would just apply. So the stack of resumes like really pile up. And then when there is someone to hire, uh, they'll just like call back the first three or four the, the on the top. And because the, they only the manager only wants to do three or four interviews and just like wants to fill that position ASAP. And of course that doesn't work out very well for anyone. Well, it's, and I think that that issue also speaks to bigger problems just in coffee and probably I would imagine most industries in general is that we oftentimes look at a problem and when people who are different aren't involved in the solution, we say, but they're not here. They haven't shown up and we'll like, of course they haven't shown up because we haven't let them know that it's a problem that we want them to be involved in or that there is a pathway to get there. So kind of going back to you being on the executive council, um, one of the things that about like one of the things about the BGA that kind of always got me is that to volunteer, people are like, just volunteer, just show up. But as you mentioned before, one of the reasons you got involved with the BGA is because you had no idea how to do that. Yeah, I <laughs> the reason I, I'm on the executive council is because I saw on I don't know, Twitter, or Instagram, um, a, like a call for nominations for executive council. And I was like, I'm going to nominate myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I honestly didn't know. I had no idea like what I was doing. I, I just like I didn't I didn't even know what the process was. Um, I wasn't 100 percent sure what the executive council did. I knew people who'd served on it, um, but I, I I really didn't know. And I but I I mean, and obviously like part of it was it was at a time when coming off of the recent political uh the recent presidential election i was feeling particularly like determined to just be involved in things and change things um and i and i also like i think at some points i mean we all complain about things like we all you know when events are put on um there's sometimes complaints about like representation where you know we'll say oh well, this event is happening but you know, all the people on this panel look a certain way or, um, and I've, I've realized that while I believe in calling that stuff out, I also believe in change from within. And, um, part of me really felt like if I ever want to say, well, this isn't enough or this isn't good enough. I also want to feel like I, I did everything I could personally to kind of 
uh, create that change as well. Especially because at that time I was in, you know, I was director at retail. I was already in a position of leadership. It was a lot easier for me to take that chance um, and get involved. But I, I mean, that's one of the things I hope to change with my role with the BGA is I want, I want that to be more accessible. I want it to be clearer how people can get involved like I didn't even realize that there were all these like committees that you could get involved in In fact that I you know they told me that um you know when I was when I was getting like interviewed um for the because it's kind of the way that the elections work are kind of funny they're not really like a true election um you know you can nominate yourself or nominate someone else and then from the nominations you get interviewed and then the 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 nominations committee kind of pick people who then get voted on, but like, it's like a confirmation vote. Right. right. So it's not, it's not like a true election process, which I understand why they, why they do it, but that isn't something that's um, super clear. And, And when I was interviewed, I was told, well, like one of the major concerns that we have about you um, like, we know you're great. We know you do good work. um, We know you're really passionate about building community for baristas, but you haven't served on a committee before and I was like I don't know how like how I don't know how one does that like I have no idea how to even do that and so like that's great and fine if that's and if that's like you telling me I'm not going to get this because I haven't done that great just tell me where to sign up for a committee and I'll do that next um so I'm very happy that they took a chance on me but I it to me immediately exposed the fact that we can do a better job about communicating how people can get involved because it's it's crucial. Like I think it's really important that if the BGA is to be the organization that it it can and should be, we have to get people involved. But we have to make those those avenues really clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it always seems like they they want to do a lot, and maybe there's criticism that they're not doing enough, and yet it it seems like it's all volunteer, and that there there are probably many of us who are working on things that we would be qualified for committees. Like I didn't, I don't, maybe I've heard about committees and I feel like we're pretty, we're pretty in it. So if we don't know about it, um, how much, how much of it is, is it on the barista community to like go and find out and email and do their homework and how much of it is the barista guild to make those open calls? Like, Hey, we need this. Can you do these things? Come be a part of our work. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because it is a volunteer position and that that's something that can also be challenging is like most of the people that serve on the executive council are people who have not just full time jobs, but like their own businesses that can be very time consuming. A lot of them have families. Um, It's definitely something that is it's a side project, but something that's still really important. Um, And I think that it can be hard because I know that even leading up to Bloom, there was one point I had this like moment where I realized how much time I had just spent. Um, you know, being on all these phone calls and that kind of thing, organizing and realizing that none of the work that I just did is something I get paid for. Um, and that can be really hard knowing that, that that level of commitment is something that like, you know, someone who's an hourly employee, for example, may never be able to, to do because that's just not when they look at the amount of time that they have in their daily lives, devoting an hour to a phone call may actually not be something that's possible for them. Um, so that's, I think, like an area that can be really tricky. I mean, and ultimately, like, I just personally am of the mindset that leadership always, always, always has responsibility to being, to setting clear expectations, communi- communication. 
So I personally never think there's really a good time to be like, oh, well, it's really other people's job to, you know, it's it's the barista's jobs to to tell us, you know, what they need. I, I mean, that was true for me as a leader in my capacity at Irving Farm was like, I didn't want to ever wait for any of my baristas ever to come to me and be like, I need a thing. Like, I need a thing to make my job easier. I, I wanted to anticipate those needs as much as possible. Or if I, and if I didn't, then I wanted to own it and apologize for it and be better. That is so nice to hear. <laughs> uh, people recognizing their power as leaders. And even when we were doing our Bloom event together, there was a moment where Jasper and I set up an exercise and people misinterpreted the exercise. So a lot of people kind of fudged up how they interpreted their results and immediately like Liz was in teacher mode and said like, well, that was our fault. Like we were the leaders in that and we didn't set clear expectations. And it's refreshing to hear people talk about their responsibility as leaders because we expect a lot of our baristas coming into our companies to give 100% and to do a lot of really great work. But if we as leaders don't recognize how our roles in shaping the people around us are so pivotal and making coffee better, then it's kind of wasted. And that's where we get into these negative cycles of like, well, women aren't just are just not applying or like the barista profession is necessarily one of turnover, for example, as opposed to like, hey, we're leaders. Like, how do we change things? So it's really interesting to hear you recognize that and fully own it. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm sure, Ashley, you can relate to this, but a part of it comes, I think, from my background, having been a teacher where I just felt very responsible for I it was you know it's hard to make excuses for people who in many ways I mean I taught at a public school in the Bronx I had students who were undocumented I had students who already had um you know been in prison and you know and there and uh like I taught ESL and I know statistically that the students I taught English language learners um and many of them had special needs as well, but they they tend to be like the absolute lowest rungs on the ladder in society as far as what opportunities are going to be available to them um, just by the lot they were dealt in life, which is horrific. And these are and these are kids. Like these are not these are not even a, these aren't adults. Um, and and they're just set up for failure. And that's horrible that we just let that happen and we're complicit in it. And we write these kids off as just being, oh, well, they're they're lazy, they're this, they're that, instead of being like, no, we failed them. Like, that's on us. Like, that is 100% on us. We let these kids enter into a system, and rather than help them, we, you know, we excuse their behavior, like, we, you know, kind of write off their behavior as, oh, they're just, they're just bad kids. And that's despicable to me. And I think that just, that just, like, is in my heart in so many ways about how we treat probably all people. Right. And I think power can be really scary for people to recognize, like taking ownership over what you've done poorly can be very hard. But what I really like about power and one of the uh, teaching moments I had too, when I was um, in the Bronx as well, I taught middle school. Um, I had a, I had a mentor who I would communicate to that I was, I felt like I wasn't in control at all. So the idea that power is transformative, I think, is a really interesting topic. And I and I can see where people shy away from their power 
and responsibility when we frame it in the negative, which is true. Like we should be ashamed of our failures when we see school systems failing, when we see baristas leaving jobs, when we see baristas complaining about low wages and unfair work conditions. But when I was a teacher and one of the most transformative moments I think I had teaching was uh, being in the classroom and having this group of kids who I just felt I had no control over. And I would often say like, but it's, you know, the kids who are doing this and I can't do anything about it. And I remember standing in like the classroom and my mentor, my teaching mentor was like, stood up and like put her hands down. And she was like, walk around the room and remember that you have complete control over this room. And that can be scary, but that can also be the coolest fucking thing you ever feel like people will leave this room and feel like they learned something because you did it. And that is fucking amazing. And it was so empowering um, to be like, oh, I have power. Like, that's awesome. I can do something really cool with it. So when I when I hear people talk about power, I try to think of it that way. Like, yeah, it's scary. It's a lot of responsibility. But like, look at this thing you did. Like, you made a thing. And I think the power, looking at power as a transformative force is is something that I think our coffee industry is sort of missing. But like, look what you did. Like you hired a lot of amazing people. Um, and I'm, I'm interested to know about some of like the really like highlights of that. Cause I know you're proud of your staff, but are there certain things that you're particularly proud of? Are there certain projects that you worked on that you're particularly want to highlight? Yeah, I mean, one of the stories that I often tell, but that I will always stand by is one of my greatest hiring success stories is I have this, um, I had the staff member who, and I, I've, I think I told both of you guys the story before, but, um, in New York, there are these staffing agencies that exist, um, where you can, it's mostly, it's for, I mean, restaurant workers, um, and they, you can call them up and you, it sounds insane because you can call them up and order essentially like a, a porter or a dishwasher and they will show up at your door like 30 minutes later, like a person is just like to work is just suddenly at your door. Um, and they, and so you can call them and you can kind of tell them the, you can describe the job. Um, it's very strange because they, a, they will ask you questions that are racist. Um, they will ask you questions like, um, are you okay with someone who's black? And I remember the first time they asked me this question, I was like, uh, yeah, like, well, of course I'm okay with that. Um, and, and it took me a moment to realize the reason that they asked that question was because in New York, and I'm sure this is true in a lot of um, urban areas, their kitchens are often divided, but like a lot of people work in kitchens are all of one, um, a lot of times they're from one family, but you'll have kitchens that are all Mexican and you'll have kitchens that are all Dominican and kitchens that are all West African. Um, and that's why they ask because if you, send someone who's from um, like Senegal to a kitchen that's Mexican, there are just cultural and language barriers that sometimes mean that person will be out of a job pretty quickly anyway. And so it's, it's a really weird and messed up system, but weirdly also designed to kind of help people. Um, so anyway, there was one time where I needed a dishwasher and I um, called one of these staffing agencies and I, and I got this guy and he is from Gambia um, which is in Africa, if you don't know. <laughs> um, it's a very tiny country. I didn't know where it was when I it's first It's like a little him. sliver. Yeah. West Africa. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, he, so he was a dishwasher and he was great. He was really quiet. He had like the, a very thick accent that sometimes like he would, he would talk and I could not understand a word he was saying, which I then felt really horrible and embarrassed by. Um, 
and and he but he was a great worker and he worked really hard and after a while we were like oh he's so great like maybe he wants to like do something else besides just washing dishes so we had him we trained him how to make sandwiches in the kitchen and he was really great at that and was like wow like do you want to learn how to be a barista um and he was like yes and so we just and like mind you this is someone who had no interest in like you know he didn't come to us because he was like i want to be a I want to be a barista or I want to work in the coffee industry. He was just, I'm, I'm here for a job. Um, in fact, he was doing this while he was in school for nursing. So he was, he was working, you know, he was going to school and then he was working. I mean, I'm sure the amount of hours that he was devoting to either school or work were, uh, you know, the vast majority of his time. Um, and he became a barista. And we, I mean, I think to this day, he is one of the fastest learners I've, I've ever trained. I mean, he just, I think it was like two weeks and he could pour better latte art than baristas who had been doing it for years. He's, I think, I mean, he's still to this day, probably one of the better latte artists at, at Irving farm. What does he do for Irving farm now? He's, he's a barista. Um, he, he was a lead barista for a time as well because I mean, he was so great that like it was hard not to continue basically just promoting him. Um, not, unfortunately slash not unfortunately because it's great for him he he is going to be a nurse so he does that is like the main thing that he does um as far as school but he's in the side on the side he still works for Irving Farm as a barista um but that's I mean it I took a chance on someone who was just going to be a dishwasher and we promoted him and I mean the thing is like he isn't from the U.S. so he has an accent um he definitely doesn't look like a stereotypical. And obviously when I say a stereotypical barista, I do mean like a straight white man. Um, there are a lot of people who probably would never have taken a chance on him. I mean, the, the language and the, the accent alone would probably have deterred people because they would think maybe someone like him doesn't, isn't able to communicate with customers or something like that. Yeah. That's so ridiculous when we, when we think about it that way, like, Oh, his, his accent, isn't hireable like if if we have to put that in the sentence then it sounds really ridiculous and and really discriminatory and yet like that's something we probably see in our cafes every day when someone doesn't look the part or doesn't sound like they're the part they're too old or um they don't have the right clothes or they don't say the right things or their resume looks really unprofessional and thrown together or handwritten. All of these things were like, <laughs> Oh, let me put this on my story or you know, like whatever it is. And yet if we had to say it out loud, it would, it would be obvious that we were making the wrong choice. Yeah. I think there's a lot of subconscious bias that goes into our understanding of especially things like customer service. I think there's, I mean, I, I've also hired and employed a lot of women over the years in particular who were maybe not the most sparkling in terms of their personalities. You know, they didn't, they just, they weren't like smiley people. Um, and I remember I had one employee who she, I mean, she had like this kind of like monotone voice and she just wasn't very smiley. Um, but she was also one of the kindest and sweetest and just wonderful people. And um, the compassion that she had for others was was honestly inspiring. Um, but there was one day when this this customer came up to her and he was like, you should really you should really smile more. And I could kind of see by her face. I mean, she she dealt with it fine. She kind of just brushed it off. 
Um, but I pulled her aside later and I was like, you never have to smile for anyone. I don't care. Like, I just don't. Um, but that's not like I know saying that, like, you know, I'm sure there are people who will hear that and be like, oh, I can't believe that you wouldn't require your baristas to smile. Like, I, I just don't I don't believe in that. I just don't think customer service has to be tied to whether or not you can smile at someone in a given moment because sometimes you don't feel like it or because that person actually creeps you out. Right. Even that middle ground, like you didn't even go in the middle for that statement. Like it wasn't like. It was like, well, that guy was just silly. Like, I can't believe he said that to you, but laughing it off. You said you like went for the, the, the right move. Like, no, you don't have to do anything for anyone, which I also really appreciate because I think in a lot of customer service interactions like that, our natural tendencies to be like, oh, ha ha, like the customer was so silly to say that to you, but like, we're not actually going to do anything about it. That story made me think about how maybe businesses don't want to hire some people that don't look the type because they feel like the customer won't respond to them well or that they're upholding some sense of what is good customer service from what society and the customers demand. Um, but what, I mean, did you ever have any other instances where a customer pushed back on your hiring choices and Oh, yeah, like a ton of times. Although I also want to say say a quick story here that I think is relevant here that I, to that point, that actually is not, this is pre uh, my time as a barista, which is I was, I became the manager of the dog walking company that I was walking dogs for. Um, and one of, and one of my jobs was to hire dog walkers, um, which I mean, at this point in my life, I really feel like most things when it comes to hiring and interviewing anyone for anything is more or less the same. Like I just, I just think that there's like uh, certain qualities that I just, and part of it is I don't care about experience. I care about people who are kind and who show up on time and who work hard or like, that's pretty much all I ever want in anyone I hire for any job. Um, but so I was hiring dog walkers and there was this one guy that I wanted to hire who was really great and I liked him a lot. And so I told the owner, I was like, oh, I'm, I want to hire this guy. And the owner was like, really? Like that guy? And I was like, yeah, like he's great. I mean, I think he'll be, I think he'll be a good fit. And he's like, well, and full disclosure, this, the guy that I wanted to hire is black. And the owner was like, well, you know, some dogs don't like black people. And I was like, um, what? <laughs> what and he and he was like yeah i just you know i'm just like concerned that maybe the you know the clients you know their dogs like we might stress the dogs out and oh i just God. feel like maybe that's you know that we don't really want to go that route and i was like i don't give a shit about whether or not someone like that that is ridiculous and if someone thinks their dog is racist i guarantee it's because they are racist and they are uncomfortable around a black person and then their dog is picking up on that. That is what is happening. Um, and to tell me not to hire someone because they are black is 100% really, really horribly racist. And then he launched into whole, well, I have black friends, so I can't be racist. And I'm a 34th Native American, so I can't be racist. Um, but it was it was ridiculous to me that he was he was using the excuse of like the dogs like it was like the dogs are racist and that's why we can't hire this guy. Right, it's like this exactly the same like customers like <laughs> right. the customers are the racist ones or like the customers are the ones saying these things but like we have absolutely no control over that. It's like 
We have, we have plenty of control. And wasn't the, the racist dog thing like a police campaign? Like they, in like the 20s and 30s, there was some really horrific racist art, like as, you know, it piled up in our history's racist art galleries of like dogs attacking black people and young black boys in particular. Like that is from U.S. propaganda, that in particular. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I mean, I've heard weird stuff like that before and it's, it's, I mean, it makes me sick, honestly, to think about it because, I mean, one of the things I, I have rode and trained, ridden and trained horses almost all my life. And one of my favorite things about animals in general is that they don't give a shit what you look like. In fact, that's like one of the, I actually wanted to get into um, therapeutic riding because one of the things that's great about working with, you know, people, horses and people with disabilities is that horses don't judge you because you are in a wheelchair or because you, you know, whatever is happening, they don't care. They just don't. They care if you are going to pet them and give them carrots. (laughs) And dogs are the same. As someone who worked for a large, a generally large company, Irving Farm was what? By the time you left, I would say, what, 150, 200 employees? Yeah. How, How do you find balancing your beliefs, which you're very outspoken on, if you just, you know, just just find a Twitter feed or something like that. <laughs> um, and Liz and I have worked on, you know, writing for Barista Magazine. We had uh, a conversation that we published about gender a couple months ago. Um, how do you find balancing that dichotomy of being a representative for your large organization and still being true to what you believe? Like, how do you imbue your beliefs into the role that you ultimately have? I mean, I think I was I was really lucky because at least during the majority of the time that I was at Irving Farm, um, I had especially like the beginning half of my time at as a director of retail, like I really only interacted very closely with the owners who just trusted me. And that was huge to me. I mean, that that meant everything to me. That was why I stayed with Irving Farm for as long as I did was because they knew I don't even think they knew what I did or said anywhere else, but they didn't care. Um, I mean, I, I just, I think they just, at the end of the day, they knew that they had someone that they liked and who knew, who really had the interests of the company at heart leading their team. And, and at the end of the day, that's like, that's what mattered was like, was I there to do my job? And I was. Um, and so that kind of, and I think that's something that often gets, lost in a lot of companies and organizations is is trust like you have to trust the people that you hire to do their things i mean it's true probably for like i don't know personal relationships too at the end of the day you you have to put trust in people right especially as a company grows bigger and bigger you have to be able to let go of certain things and acknowledge that hey i hired some really good people they're going to do their jobs really well especially if i trust them and empower them to do their jobs they're going to come back and say like, I'm, you know, I want to do this because I believe in this company. Um, and I worry, you know, you telling me that Irving farm grew from five to eight and then even has more stores coming up, um, is how, how to keep that faith as you expand because naturally like things are going to be automated in certain ways. You're going to bring in people from other fields. Like I think, you know, Blue Bottle is kind of a classic example of that. Um, and to what extent they've kept their old values versus new ones, I'm not sure. Um, I can't speak to that personally. 
but I have, I always think about that. I'm like, how do you, how do you grow and do all these innovative things in growth, but at the same time, like value the people who you've hired to help you grow? Yeah, I think, I think that's a huge question right now in the coffee industry. I, I mean, at least in New York, I've watched, I mean, not just Irving Farm grow, but a number of other coffee companies in New York grow over the past few years. When you look at um, Gregory's and Joe and Grumpy, um, Birch, these are all companies that have, have gone from a handful of stores over the past, you know, five years even to quite a few. I mean, now a lot of them would be considered technically chains. Um, and that's, that's, so I think there's a lot of people who are kind of asking like, what happens when you reach a certain point? How do you preserve the elements of your company that are really important? Um, I don't know that there's necessarily one answer because I think it depends. I think for me, one of the things that I've really learned in my time working with a growing company is how important communication is. Um, I think communicating is huge. You And this goes back to trust too because communication is often based in trust. Um, communication is often based in trusting people with information that you're telling them. So if there's changes happening at the company, if there are things, you know, uh, restructuring, um, you know, changes to company policies, being clear about why those are happening and when they are happening and who they are happening to is, uh, you cannot underestimate that. And sometimes like to the point where you have to like really spell it out for people, which sometimes seems like you're being almost patronizing by being like, this is happening at this time and with these people. And, but honestly, like to me, I, I think sometimes like I'm the kind of person who really values being told very clearly, like when things are happening, um, and I think that often gets overlooked because people are people get so caught up in like, what's going to happen next? And we're going to do this thing and we're going to launch an RTD cold brew program and we're going to open in all these different cities and this and that. And they completely forget about the teams that they have left behind, basically. I think I read this study once while I was working as a barista um, at Third Rail that people are more likely to buy into a thing that's happening if you give them a reason. So like, if you just say like, I was reading about this because I worked at third rail and there were certain things we wouldn't do in 16 ounce cups. And so you could get a 16 ounce coffee, but you couldn't get a 16 ounce latte, for example. So telling someone, oh no, we don't do that was really difficult for me. So I was like, how do I frame this to people differently? And even just adding, oh, we don't do 16 ounce lattes because and giving a reason, even if that reason was a nonsense reason. So we don't do 16 ounce lattes because 16 ounce cups are 50% more likely to give you cancer. Like even something that didn't make any <laughs> sense was more likely to evoke a response from a person where they're like, oh, okay, I understand. As opposed to like, well, that's ridiculous and I want to fight back. So you saying that was really interesting because I was like, even if a company's motivations aren't always clear or maybe don't even make sense to you knowing why somebody does something or their thought process is so critical like being turned down for a job for example like i think it's so powerful when your boss or the person who is maybe in charge of giving you this job or not giving you this job sits down with you and says like hey you're really great but this is the reason this didn't happen this time even if it doesn't really make sense because of course it's not gonna make sense. You wanted that job. You thought you were the most qualified for it. But even just hearing someone else's reasoning and realizing that these are things that happen with the idea of reason in mind, I think is really powerful. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think um, also, I mean, the other thing that I think is also really critical 
to go back to like the conversation around trust um, is kind of, I think like part of it is also knowing is really creating a sense of team team teamsmanship that's not a word is that a word just a team i guess team, a team teamwork. just a team just teamwork um because i think dream work <laughs> <laughs> because i think at the end of the day you have a responsibility i mean i have, i would often tell people like i am only as good as my like or a chain is only as good as its weakest links um so my team is only as good as its weakest links which means that every person on my team is valuable and if one of them is suffering if one of them is not invested then then this whole thing is not working basically um and so to me part of part of creating really clear communication involves really trusting everyone in that team as being part of creating and pushing forward a unifying vision um i often create a boat analogy when i talk about this stuff which is really funny because i actually i don't know anything about boats (laughs) But I'm like, you know, you need like the person who's uh, raising the sails or whatever. And then the other person who's like steering, you know, you need all these different people who are all making the (laughs) the boat work. Like I need to think of a different analogy. I don't know why that's one that I really lean on, I guess, because I think. I like the idea of like the, the or I don't like the idea of like the ship sinking, but I'm, I like to me, it's like a really powerful idea to be like, yeah, if you don't have like the one person who's doing that thing, then your whole your whole boat's going to go down. Um, but it's true. Like, I think that you you have to really everyone needs to be invested. Everyone needs like you should be able to walk. I think every company should really feel this way, which is like you should be able to go to every single person in your company and you should ask them, like, what is this company about? What do we do? What do we do here? And every single person on the company should be like, we do X, Y, and Z. Like these are, and the, the answer should all be the same. But I don't, I think most people, if they did that, they would find that they would have a whole wacky different range of answers. Yeah. People are like, when people leave companies, they'll say things like, well, I wasn't involved or I wasn't valued or I didn't know what was going on. No one is like, I got too many emails telling me <laughs> <laughs> what was happening or like I was pressured to grow too much <laughs> no one's gonna do that so you're never gonna like wanted to talk to me too much about my day <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah people seemed too interested in my development as a person <laughs> that company man <laughs> how dare they <laughs> that's true i what uh, that's one of those yeah exactly that's one of those things that like says no one ever like, when has that ever been a problem? Like, dare, like, I don't know, I don't know, this sounds a little cheesy, but it's like, dare to be involved and, like, open and vulnerable. Like, dare to be, like, hey, guys, like, we're not growing as fast as we want to because of, like, monetary stuff. Like, that's okay. Like, I, something that I feel like I, I lean on on this person a lot, but something that I really admire about Nick is that Nick, Nick Cho of Wrecking Ball is that he'll tell you everything that's going on at all times. Um, and what you were saying about trust really reminded me of what Elise Hogan said about her role at Wrecking Ball at Kalita USA. She basically started working for Wrecking Ball when she was 25. And they were like, hey, we're going to start kind of this umbrella company. We want you to just run it like it's your own company. And it's like, why not trust someone? Like, why not have faith in them? What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, people, I think, I mean, money is this drug to people and i've watched money and and greed corrupt people in really messed up ways to the point where people will become so blinded to their businesses making money and 
you know, profiting that they forget about everything else. Like it just, and I think that's, and so things like trust become, it just suddenly becomes secondary because they're, at the end of the day, the, it's the, you know, it's the dollar signs in the eyes kind of thing. That's, that's the, the lens through which they're beginning to see everything else. And that's one of my, that's one of my biggest concerns about watching so many companies in the, in the coffee industry grow as they are, because I, it's hard to see who's doing it because, um, you know, it, they're really, they really feel like they're kind of adding value to, to our industry or they're doing it because of this weird, like manifest destiny, uh, drive. Yeah. I think a lot of people intend to care for their employees or, um, you know, maybe like, as you were saying, like dare to be, I, there are probably a lot of people listening to us now who are like, okay, I will dare to be it. But it, it's like, what, what are you going to do about it? It can't just be lip service and it's going to be like dare to be it. And then dare to put three hours a week into doing it and prioritizing it and making that happen like Liz has done. (laughs) Yeah. I think putting it into practice is a lot harder than, than it seems. I think there's a lot of people who say and rally around certain ideas, but don't commit genuinely to doing them. But it can be so easy. It can be as easy as saying to your staff, like, hey, our store didn't do as well last quarter as this quarter and something needs to change, but we're all together right now. Like, what do you guys think is the change? And for you, you might be seeing dollars and figures be like, I have to cut staff, which is never the right answer. Ever, 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 ever the right answer. Um, but maybe your staff sees something that you don't because you're not on the floor every day. Like they're like, hey, we have like 20 things of soy milk like in our back. Maybe, maybe, maybe nobody likes soy milk anymore, which is kind of sort of true, although it's coming back, I think. Uh, <laughs> so like maybe, maybe that's like a cost cutting, cost cutting tactic. Or maybe your staff is like, hey, like we open until like eight and maybe we should close at six because our last two hours are really slow. Like daring to like make your business like a public forum. And even if you, and if you're too big for that, even like empowering people to do that on smaller scales is really doesn't seem that hard, but it is like a daring to be vulnerable, like daring to be candid about your business. Yeah, I think I mean, right, you have to you have to expose yourself a little bit to your own weaknesses, which can be I mean, like one of the things that I had to do occasionally in my role as director of retail at Irving Farm was, um, you know, if a manager was away, uh, like I had a manager who went on maternity leave. um, And so I had to take over her store for a time. And there were things that I would discover whenever I did these things where I'd be like, oh my God, why are like, why are they doing this this way? Like, this is ridiculous. And you kind of discover things. But I mean, part of it was, I, I often reacted to it as like, wow, I maybe didn't make clear that like, this wasn't something we were supposed to do, or this was something that we were supposed to do. Um, but it was, it was refreshing because I mean, to me, I'm a very, I'm a very hands-on kind of person. I do best when I can really work directly with people. Um, and so for me to actually physically go into spaces and and like see things and kind of understand them was really valuable to me but then it also gave me a chance to talk to the staff who worked at the stores and i would just kind of like bounce ideas off them and you know why do you think this is here why do you guys why do you guys put all this stuff over here and the staff would be like oh we do that because you know like the this workflow issue that we have makes it so that we can't use this space for that and then i'd be like oh that's terrible like we should really switch this or i should get like a shelf installed here for you um 
And I, I, that, I never ever would have learned those things if I didn't just go there and talk to the staff and treat them like they were equal partners in making the store a better place. Will you tell us about your cats? <laughs> uh, yeah, I have two cats. They're probably my favorite things on this earth in general right now. Uh, one of them is Fitzwilliam, who I got. I stole him from a barn. <laughs> I didn't steal Ooh. him, but he didn't really belong Scandalous. to anyone. He was a he was a kitten of a feral cat, and so I, I, I knew he didn't he didn't belong to anyone, um, and he was just the cutest kitten. And I took him home one day because he was so cute. Uh, and then my newest cat is Winston, who's almost now. I, it's almost a year since I first adopted him. And I was actually just telling a friend of mine, um, he, I adopted him from the Animal Care and Control Center in New York, which is um, the, the kind of New York's animal shelter. They have a 100% intake rate, which means that they take every bedraggled, sad, abused creature ever. I mean, it's, it's not a fun place to be. You see some really upsetting and horrific things. And they do put animals down because they just don't have the space and the resources. And I would tell every person now ever, please adopt from shelters like that because you help move animals out of those shelters so that more animals can be housed and hopefully find homes so they don't ever have to put them down. Um, so that is like my, <laughs> my PSA. Please adopt and adopt from shelters that really could use those resources. Um, but Winston is the most delightful cat I mean, so is Fitzwilliam, but Winston just has this like unique personality that is so strange. He brings me toys, plays fetch. Uh, he likes to spend, he doesn't like to not be near me ever. I mean, he wants to be in the bathroom with me when I, I mean, really am I doing, I'm doing anything in the bathroom. He wants to be there with me. I cannot close doors ever around him. Um, Does he meow if you do that? Yeah, oh yeah, he meows and he scratches. He doesn't, he does not like being apart from me really ever um he likes to like he'll sit kind of behind me on the couch and he likes to put his paw on my shoulder um he's Ooh. he's a and it's and that not to continue talking about the animal shelter situation but when i think about the fact that this poor adorable little kitten was just abandoned i just i get very upset because that should never happen but it does and this actually is funny because i was talking about this earlier with a friend of mine that this in a weird way goes back to my feelings on like leadership and responsibility <laughs> because at the end of the day, the reason like, you know, cats and dogs are domesticated animals and, and like we have a responsibility as human beings for, for basically these creatures existence at this point. And so the way that we treat them, that's, I mean, we have to take responsibility for that. We have to. So like, Things like letting these, I mean, animal shelters and then designer dog breeds that shouldn't exist. I could rant about this forever because I just think the way we treat right. animals is appalling. Right. And then there's the other side where there's the like extreme vegans who say that owning animals is a form of animal, animal husbandry and that one shouldn't have ownership of any living being. And that is abuse in and of itself. And yet like we've created this massive problem and it, it is very convenient to be like, oh, let's just back away slowly and be like, no, no, it's wrong to care for them now. That's like, um, no. that reminds me of like, we were talking the other day about why like Portland exists. 
and how it's like <laughs> white people were like, I don't want to deal with this whole slavery thing, even though I've 100% been a part of it. I'm just going to go create this like white utopia and yeah. try and pretend I didn't have any involvement in that. Yeah, yeah, no, we, I think we have a responsibility when we in positions of power, if we do something, if we're complicit in a system, we have a responsibility to take care of it, to see it through, like whatever we have to do, we, we have to. And to be clear to our listeners, the, that Portland bit was is referring to the beginning of the state of Oregon. Um, so please Google that and keep reading about that. What's next <laughs> for you? You don't have to tell us everything, but what are some of your what are some of your goals? It can be just like I want to get a massage next week, or. <laughs> Uh, that's a great question. I don't know yet. I have a lot of fun side projects that I'm kind of doing right now. I recently um, started working for Oatly, the oat milk company, which I love. I think they're just a really cool company doing awesome stuff. Um, so I'm excited about that. Um, I'm picking up barista shifts at a cafe two blocks from where I live, which I'm very excited about. It's the dream. <laughs> you don't even know, guys. <laughs> I've never been able to walk to work ever. I don't think ever. Maybe in college, but because I worked on campus. But at least in my like adult life, I've never been able to walk to work. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I've been hit up for a lot of like consulting work at various projects, which could be really fun and interesting. So um those kinds of things and then at some point i mean i'd love to open my own cafe someday but i like am not anywhere close to making that a reality happen especially financially so that is probably at least a few years out which means i just need to figure out what i'm gonna do before then and i don't really know so uh, retail education are my biggest and management are my biggest passions and talents so probably something relating to those Thank you for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. What? Can people get in touch with you? Can they bug you? You're on the BGA, so yes. Yes, they technically can bother me because <laughs> like of, I'm, on, I'm on the BGA. And that's fine. I want people to. I like. I would love to be bothered about um, more ideas and more content. And I also really, I want to be held accountable for my role as a representative. That's what I'm there for. I'm there to represent baristas. And if I'm not doing that, then tell me that because I, I should know that. Um, and I mean, I'm very active on social media as That's you true. all know. Uh, <laughs> thank people, God. <laughs> where can people follow you? Uh, probably the best place are either like Instagram, if, especially if you're like, you hear my cat stories and you're like, Oh, I, I love cats. Uh, Instagram is a really good place to see more of that. Um, and then Twitter is definitely an area where I've, I've become very active. Um, but yeah, and what say hi handles? to me. My ha- oh, my handles. Uh, Liz S. Dean is my Twitter handle. And then I think rights and wrongs is my Instagram handle, which is like, I don't even remember why that's my Instagram handle. It's like a, I think it was like an old screen name that I had from. <laughs> I was about to say, that sounds like a Death Cat for Cutie yeah, I think it was album like- <laughs> cover or something. It was like leftover from my angsty, like, high school or early college days mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds right um but yeah thank you again for talking to us and if you have anything you want to talk to us about please email us at boss at gmail.com i'm channeling jasper now 
I'm trying to sing all of my stuff at the end. Sing all handles. Just sing all the handles. I what? even sound like Jasper right now. Twitter. Uh, our Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uh, I'm just channeling my uh, Uptown Girl performance from before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we sang karaoke, and Ashley's Uptown Girl was the best. majestic and. Um, like not as moving really as like to black. well obviously uh speechless that's that's the word i'm looking there for go. it was unexpected <laughs> you just bring a lot of passion and enthusiasm in a way that is rarely captured in karaoke to be honest and i've i've <laughs> and i will say i've been to karaoke with a lot of great coffee people um who are awesome and you're you're up you're up there. You're one of the best. That's that's really flattering. Um, I bring a lot of passion to all Billy Joel related projects. I have. <laughs> um, all right. Can I do it to the beat of Uptown Girl? Da, da, da. Or lady. You can find us on the Instagram. <laughs> Our handle is Boss Barista Podcast. Yes. And on Twitter, we're also there. <laughs> Boss underscore barista. <laughs> <laughs> That was right, awesome. I'm done. I'm done with this podcast. That was the best I'll ever do. Retweet us <laughs> when we drop this episode next month. <laughs> we get excited when you send us emails <laughs> and when we read them and see that they're there oh man <laughs> i went too hard on karaoke my voice is not doing so good put us on your stove yeah that's the hard part right hard that's part that like song. the every time you do that part i'm always like wow it's really difficult <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> Thanks for listening to all that ending and not just like skipping your 15 minute, 15 seconds, 15 seconds to the end of this. Right? <laughs> if you've listened at this point, you are a true hero. Yeah, they should get some kind of prize if they listen all the way through. Yeah, the secret word is Uptown Girl in the next email you sent us. <laughs> if you've been listening, you might get a surprise. We still have a lot of pins. You guys can still keep buying pins. I yeah. have a lot of them. Yeah, keep buying pins, everyone. Yeah. How um, how do they do that? Should you they- can do it on our GoFundMe account, which you can find on our Instagram in the um in the bio. You can click on that. Or if you just send us any sort of message, be like, hey, I want a pin, and I'll be like, What's your address? It's not creepy. Easy um, enough. Yeah. But you can just send us a message and you can get a pin that way too. Um But for the re- for Boss Barista <laughs> Podcast, I'm Ashley Rodriguez. <laughs> and I'm Jasper Wilde. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, that, for Jasper. listening. <laughs> Bye.